So, um, I just want to summarize the meditation from yesterday, the meditation that's in conjunction with the 108 verses on compassion. The, the very first day, remember, we talked, we uh, meditated on the first kind of compassion, how sentient, uh, compassion of observing sentient beings, and there we meditated on how the sentient beings are like the bucket in the well. Okay? And so we went through the six ways in which they, they uh, resemble a bucket in the well. So that's the meditation for the first kind of compassion. For the second kind of compassion, yesterday what I had to do, I kind of put a few meditations together because I personally find it quite effective, is start out by reflecting on the kindness of others so you have a real sense of the kindness. And then to meditate on the second compassion, the compassion observing phenomena, meaning of sentient being, the compassion of learning, sentient beings that are designated in relationship to the phenomena of their body and mind. Then after uh, getting this sense of the kindness of others, then meditate on how sentient beings are impermanent and how they, they want happiness and to avoid suffering with all their heart and they're seeking happiness by trying to make everything secure and fixed and static and permanent you know they're trying to like control everything and yet the very nature in which they live in which we live is transient is changing moment by moment is disintegrating in the very next moment so the whole way sentient beings are going about trying to find happiness is mistaken because they're trying to make last and eternal, make eternal things that by their nature disintegrate moment by moment and don't remain the same. Okay? So you can see this uh, in terms of the objects that we grasp at uh, as giving us happiness and how we're trying to get them and obtain security from them and make them last forever and how, you know, sentient beings are just trying to do that all the time, day after day after day and yet whatever they have, whatever they're grasping onto that they think is going to make them happy is changing in the very next moment. Okay? And so, to, to really think how their whole pursuit is so misdirected and how they never wind up with the kind of happiness they want. And your, your heart kind of goes out to them. Yeah? And then you think about how they themselves are impermanent, especially the body. And so the body going, you know, straight towards aging, sickness, and death without any kind of respite. There's no, you can't press the pause button on time. Okay? And like, okay, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to die this life. Just press the pause button and I'll stay this age. It, you know, that's impossible. And so thinking about how sentient beings themselves are headed towards aging, sickness, death. And with death, because they're under the influence of ignorance, then comes another rebirth and another death and another rebirth and another death. And it just continues on that way. And so in that way also you can really have a strong sense of compassion um, 
for them seeing the predicament that's coming about through their own wrong conception mind. Now the reason I had to meditate first on seeing other beings like this is because for us it's often easier to see other beings' situation. The key to the meditation though is after we see it in others, we turn the spotlight on ourselves. And how am I, you know, I'm no different than all the other sentient beings. I'm trying to make everything fixed and firm to get happiness from external things that by their very nature are transient. I myself am growing towards sickness, aging, and death, and there's no cause button around. You know, and really think of it in terms of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because a few people have told me in the interviews that it's very fine meditating about these things in terms of others and they can get a strong feeling of compassion. But somehow when they meditate on it in terms of themselves, nothing much comes or there's no impetus to practice dharma. You reach a certain point in your dharma practice and you're satisfied with it and you can't seem to get yourself beyond it. And that whole difficulty is because it's precisely at this point where it touches home that our mind balks. Okay? And that shows actually that the compassion that we're having for the other sentient beings is actually intellectual. Yeah? Because if we can't have the determination for ourselves to be free, and we can't see with horror the situation we're in and want ourselves to get out of samsara. Considering the fact that we're the most important ones in our lives, if we can't have that for ourselves, at what depth do we have it for others? Yeah? So we have to have it for ourselves. And our mind fights it. It fights it, you know. We are in all-out rebellion against seeing the reality in which we live. So ego is going to put up, by ego I mean our ignorant mind, our self-centered mind, it's going to put up every defense it can think of. Yeah. Wrong conception mind is not going to go down easily. <laughs> yeah. It's the biggest dictator in the world. It is the most outstanding terrorist in the world. And it's not going to just lay over, roll over on its back and say bye bye. It's going to fight. So, how is it going to fight? Well, you're hungry and you've got to get off your medicine and your meditation to go eat. And you have to return this phone call. And, you know, you have to go to work and you have to do this. And there's all these other things to do. And they're all for Dharma causes, so they're really good. So it's okay if you don't meditate, so you're doing these things for Dharma causes. And... But then you start to do it for Dharma causes, but then, you know, you get hungry again. Your friend wants to go to the movie, and then, you know, your niece is getting married, and uh, your nephew is getting, you know, bar mitzvah, and uh, somebody else is getting confirmed. And, I mean, these things are really important. And then there's a few graduations in there, 
And I mean, they're so important. They're incredibly important. Your whole family harmony and unity depends upon these things. So you've got to do them. So, you know, meditation you can do later, but, you know, this family event happens only once in a lifetime, so you better do it now, else you're going to miss it. Yeah? Okay, so that comes up. <laughs> yeah. And that's the easy stuff to deal with. That's the easy stuff. What comes, what also comes up is in your meditation, you stay in the cushion, but you get a little bit groggy, you know, your mind's not quite so clear. Or you get an image of Chenrezig and it's really time to meditate on Chenrezig and feel that light and bliss pour into you instead. Yeah? Oh, when you start a practice, let's just switch the meditation to the woman in I feel much better when I do that. So that happens. Or you just seem to be repeating the words, and it's just the words, and it's not kind of getting anywhere. Then you begin to have a lot of doubt. Ah, these meditations, I'm just saying the same words, I've been doing the same words for the last three meditation sessions at least um, you know nothing's moved nothing's changed why am I sitting here doing this you know I should be having some experience of it I'm not, I'm not. so what's the use of my meditation practice yeah my meditation practice isn't going anywhere you know so let's just stop doing it that comes up Mm-hmm. Or what comes up is another kind of doubt. Oh, I'm impermanent? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, there's a real thing that's me. And yeah, I know that, that, that uh, you know, oh, this is a real good one. Yeah, I know death is definite and the time of death is indefinite. And I've done the meditation, imagining my own death. And I just went real smooth through that whole thing. <laughs> you know? In my meditation, it was so good. I meditated, I was in the doctor's office, I got my diagnosis. I was completely calm. I went and I told my family about my terminal diagnosis. And they were all sad, but they accepted it. They were all surrounding me with so much love. I got to do everything I've ever wanted to do before I die. And then, you know, my body got a little weaker, but that was okay. I didn't mind lying in bed. I finally got to rest a bit. <laughs> you know, my mind was so calm. I just lay there in bed with Chenrezi on my head, saying mantra. And my family all around, and they're also saying mantra. They finally became Buddhas. <laughs> happened to be coming to me, so Actually, it just wasn't my, my regular Dharma teacher. It was his holy <laughs> And he heard that I was dying, and out of his great compassion, he came as holy, sat by my bedside, and held my hand while 
so I had no fear at all, no regrets, none of my negative karma ripened, you know, no guilt about anything I had done in my life, and His Holiness just did poa and transferred my mind to a pure land. <laughs> and I was all set. So that was my meditation on impermanence and death, and I managed it very well. So I don't have anything to worry about about being in samsara. These, you know, these three sufferings, you know, they don't really apply to me. Yeah. Impermanence and death, well, they apply, but you know, I, I got it in, and yeah. <laughs> or maybe His Holiness Himself doesn't come, but Chenrezig appears and scoops me up and takes me to the pure land. It's all set. Yeah. So, I'm not afraid of death. Death doesn't mean anything to me. I can give everything up just like that. I'm not attached to anything. Yeah. I don't have attachment for my body. don't have attachment for my possessions. don't have attachment for my ego. I don't have any attachment to my loved ones. I'm going to separate from them. It's all essential. That's the real one we get into, you know. It's called deluded pride. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're just deluding ourselves and we're very arrogant about the whole thing. Except it doesn't appear to be arrogance at all. Yeah. It appears to be because somehow we are a special disciple. And we're entitled to all this, you know, all this stuff, you know, special attention. Okay, so um, this all acts, you know, like I said, in your mind it's going to fight back every way it can possibly think of to keep us from understanding the reality in which we live. Yeah, because the existence of ignorant mind depends upon us believing all the varied hallucinations that we create and sustain and hold it to. Okay. So it's really important to continue with these meditations um, until we actually get some experience and some downright alarm about being in samsara. You know, where you're really alarmed and where you really go, oh my goodness, you know, my mind is total hallucination. And the Buddha really knew what he was talking about because I haven't realized how things exist, but I've gotten to the point where I can see that my mind is out of lack of reality even though I'm perfectly normal according to the what is it the you know that yeah the DSM four. You know, totally normal according to four. But my mind is, has nothing to do with reality. Hmm? Okay. So that that point is, is really important to get to. We can't force ourselves to get there. We have to create the causes to get there. So we have to do some purification because that gets rid of a lot of the negative karma that obscures our mind. We have to do practices of accumulating merit. 
stimulating positive potential because that enriches our mind with good energy. We have to listen to teachings. We have to think about the teachings. We have to get to the cushion and meditate about the teachings. Okay? So we have to create all the causes for this. And it takes a while to create the causes, so we don't expect that we're going to realize all these things instantaneously. But we don't give up because we don't realize them instantaneously. We keep on creating the causes. So this this is all very important to actually get somewhere, you know, in the long term. What we're going to meditate on now is the third kind of compassion. Okay? So it's the, the objectless compassion or the compassion of the unapprehendable. Okay. So sentient beings uh, are not an inherently existent object. They are not apprehended as inherently existent they, they are not they do not exist this way okay um, or they actually say they're not apprehended as inherently existent to those who understand reality to the rest of us you know we do but for those who understand reality they don't apprehend that that sentient things in that way okay. so similarly I think it's helpful here to start Reminding ourselves of the kindness of others, yeah, because that that really makes the mind much more receptive, and it makes us care about the situation of sentient beings, yeah, because we see them as as lovable. So seeing others as lovable is really important. Okay, then we think about how sentient beings don't inherently exist. Yeah, that there's no findable. I or mine, no findable body or mind, no findable anything, and yet sentient beings in their ignorance grasp all these things as findable, grasp all these things as truly existent, are clutching and trying to possess all these things which they think are solid and truly existent, but which aren't. And so then compassion comes, okay? A few reasons, because first you see that all the sentient beings suffering comes from this ignorance, grasping a true existence. True existence and inherent existence in this context mean the same thing. So all the suffering comes from grasping a true existence, but things are not truly existent. So from this grasping, you know, this fundamental hallucination, then comes a clinging attachment, resentment, grudges, arrogance, yeah, miseriness, self-hatred, guilt, anxiety, fear, you know, all these other things come from this ignorance. But the ignorance is just a thought. It's, a cre- it's, it's grasping at an object that is its own creation that doesn't exist in reality. And so then you begin to see that all sentient beings suffering 
doesn't really have to happen. Yeah, it's all happening only because of the ignorance in their mind stream. And so that brings tremendous compassion because look at all these beings who are suffering unnecessarily. And not only are they suffering unnecessarily, but they're grasping desperately onto the view of the ignorance, thinking that that's going to bring them happiness when it, it brings them actually the opposite. So then you have more compassion for them because you see that they want happiness, but they're and they want to avoid suffering, but they're holding on to and clutching on to for dear life the actual thing that causes them suffering. It's like my brother, when he was a kid, I don't know, maybe he was two or three years old, he was riding his tricycle around the swimming pool, and he rode it off and into the deep end of the swimming pool, and the tricycle went to the bottom with him on it, and he held onto the tricycle. (laughs) You know? So this is like sentient beings. What is killing you is what you hold on to and don't want to give up. Okay? Exactly the thing that is causing you suffering that is going to kill you is what you hold on to and don't want to give up. Okay? This is the exact same thing in the mind of any alcoholic that you can think of, whether it's an alcoholic or a drugaholic or a workaholic or a shopaholic, you know, this is the exact thing that's killing you is what you hold on to for dear life. Now, thank goodness in my brother's case, there was somebody else around who dove in and pried him away from his tricycle. You know? But the Buddha can't crawl inside of our mind and pry us away from our grasping and inherent existence. We're the only ones. We have to let go ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. Okay? So, you know, we have to see this is the situation of sentient beings and have compassion for them. And then, I am no different yeah, this is also my situation. I am no different. I am not an observer on other beings suffering. Yeah. Which is so much of our tendency, you know. I'm comfortable. My little toe hurts. I have enough to complain about to talk to my friends and keep conversation up. But I'm okay. But all these other sentient beings have so much suffering and my heart goes out to them. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. I am in the exact same boat. I'm not an observer of other people's suffering. This is my situation also. Because remember, suffering is not just ouch. So just because we feel okay and we're happy, it doesn't mean we're free of suffering. Because remember, there's the changeable suffering. In fact, when we're happy, we're riding, we're walking on the edge of that cliff of changeable suffering. Okay? 
and we still have the pervasive compounded suffering because we still have these aggregates so what are we going to be complacent and smug about what are we going to feel like suffering is something other people have that I'm immune to that is ego's hallucination that's another smokescreen that ignorant mind puts up to prevent us from recognizing the situation we're in okay so we have to see these these you know detours to la la land you know dharma la la land yeah dharma la la oh these poor suffering sentient beings I'm so glad I'm not one of them that's in our meditation session after our meditation session is can you believe what these people are doing you know I'm so miserable I have all these uncooperative people around you know but you know we have to break through that stuff and see it for what it is and then we really you know our practice is going to get much more authentic and the thing is that, that you'll meditate and you have to do all the meditation sessions where it feels like you're just reciting the words and you're not getting anywhere you have to do that a lot until you get the one where you finally get it but then why because doing all that other stuff where it seems like you aren't getting anywhere you're actually creating a cause to get somewhere okay so it's not very wise to, to judge your meditations like that then on the meditation session when you get there okay you have some experience it's not the full realization but you have some taste then the pitfall you get after that is you try and recreate it mm-hmm. yeah it's like recreating all your sexual experiences in the past you know, oh there was that great one back there so let's make this one like that it doesn't work does it okay so it's the same thing in your meditation <laughs> yeah so stop trying to recreate an experience you've had in the past so you'll probably go through a while more where it seems like and then it gets really bad because then you know that there's some feeling and you're really not getting it even though you've had it before and then you say oh I had it before and I lost it and everybody else is not lose it and it's poor me and blah blah blah, blah, blah and how effective I am never going to get anywhere and this is always happening you know so that's another smoke screen that your mind throws up to distract you from what you're doing so you just have to keep coming back to this again and again with a lot of gentleness for yourself okay, with a lot of patience for yourself with a lot of kindness for yourself you cannot beat yourself into having realizations okay you cannot sit there and go wow wow you know, why don't I get it wow you know knock your head against the wall you know. it doesn't work yeah. so we have to have you know really some kind of gentleness and patience for ourselves but 
that gentleness and patience cares enough about our long-term happiness that we keep on creating the cause and we are content to keep creating the causes because we know that cause and effect is infallible and if we create the causes then eventually they're going to ripen into the result so we're just happy creating the causes so you just keep on doing it and you have a happy mind you know and you forget about you stop being goal oriented okay the goal oriented mind that's another one you know that completely ties us up in the knots why aren't I there yet mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw this cute cartoon in it some magazine you know of the Buddhist family going on a summer road trip <laughs> you know they're going to, to Nirvana and the kids are in the back seat saying are we there yet <laughs> yeah so that's like our mind you know how come I'm not there yet okay so just let that go and just have a happy mind because you're creating the causes. So don't worry about getting there. Just keep creating the causes. And then you can have a happy mind. Why do you have a happy mind? Because you know that you're following a path that's worthwhile. And you know that you're making your life worthwhile. So it doesn't matter if you're not there yet. You know you're going in a good direction. So just that knowing that you're going in a good direction, you know, brings a certain kind of peace and satisfaction in the mind. Now, how are you going to keep going in that direction? You have to make a commitment to the path. Okay? You have to make a commitment to your own spiritual path. Because nobody else is going to follow that path for you but you. So, if, you know, if your mind's always roaming around, maybe I should practice this, maybe I should do that, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there, maybe this, maybe that. You know, were you looking for the grass that is greener on the other side of the meditation hall? Okay? As my friend says, the chanting that is more beautiful in the other temple. (laughs) The dissatisfied mind that doesn't want to commit to our own spiritual path. Now, at the beginning, you, you may not be sure what you're following. So you may need some time to sort that all out in your own mind. You know, what path are you following? What practice makes sense to you? What teacher really touches your heart? Or what teachers, because it's perfectly all right to have more than one teacher, to, you know, what teachers really touch your heart? It may take you some time to figure that out. But at some point, if you want to get anywhere, you have to, you know, stay fixed on something long enough to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, we have to make a commitment. I know that's the C word, and it's worse than cancer for some people. Yeah, I talk about it every retreat, don't I? The C word. Yeah, we want our options 
You want to be able to go here and do that. You know, maybe there's other teachers really better. You know, my friend went to that retreat. I'm sure that might be better. Maybe that practice, yeah, that's the highest practice. I haven't gotten around going to that one yet. You know, so we're always looking, 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 you know. But it's not coming from real, genuine searching. It's coming from dissatisfied mind. Okay? So there's a difference when we're genuinely searching. Yeah, because we can't just, you know, necessarily take the first teachers that we have. Yeah? Depends on your fortune, on your karma. But, you know, for some people, yes, for some people, no. So sometimes the genuine spiritual sense. We, we have to, you know, go to different teachers and find something that really touches our heart. Yeah? But then when we find something that touches our heart, you know, then we should stay there and let it deepen and let it really go into our heart. Because if we keep on changing, then how's anything ever going to go into our heart? So the role, you know, our relationship with our spiritual teachers is very important in this regard. Um, Because they are the ones who lead us on the path. And for them to lead us, we have to follow. Okay. (laughs) Leader and follower are imputed independence upon each other. (laughs) There's not an inherently existent leader that is going to lead us without there being a follower who follows. Okay. So we have to be open and receptive, yeah, and have some kind of commitment and really take to heart the instructions that our teacher gives. Now, sometimes we can't put, you know, all the instructions we get in one course, we can't necessarily put into practice, you know, tomorrow. So you have to figure out which are the essential ones that you have to immediately put into practice and which ones you're going to work yourself up to. Okay? Because you hear a lot of teachings and, you know, it takes a while to get it all straight. But, you know, we've, we've got to stick with something and we've got to make ourselves open and receptive to the teachings. Yeah? And that can be hard because... We want to hear the teachings that make us feel good. We don't want to hear the other ones. Yeah. And we want to be with our teacher where our teacher praises us and pats us on the back and tells us that we're the best disciple that they've ever had. We don't want to be with our teacher when our teacher says, And have you done this? (laughs) We don't want to be there then. You know? Um... Oh, we don't want to be there when our teacher says, well, what have you been doing? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we just want to be there when our teacher says, oh, my disciples are so wonderful. They're so wonderful. Mm-hmm. So we have to, to make ourselves receptive and open. Okay? Along this line, something that's important is our whole attitude towards the Dharma and towards our teacher. And we live in a consumer society, a consumer culture. Okay? 
we consume things. So our philosophy is, okay, if you're a consumer, there's a factory, there's a business, they develop this plan, they develop all the tools to implement the plan, they package it in a nice, friendly way that's going to make us want to do it, and then we just show up, plunk down some money, and get the product and go home. I mean, that's the way it is in our society, isn't it? Somebody else does all the work of designing it, implementing it, making it happen, manufacturing it. And we just show up at the end and buy it. Okay, if you want a new car, somebody else does all the work. Yeah? If you, if you want a computer, somebody else does all the work designing it, making it, shipping it, the whole thing. We just show up at the end and give them our business, which they should be so happy about that they have our business because we're very special. And we plunk down our money and take the package home. Okay? So this is our whole paradigm in America. You know? Even kids going to school nowadays, you know, they don't have respect for their teachers the way they used to. The kids act like consumers. I've come here to school. You should treat me this way. You know? And the parents do that too. I've talked to some teachers and, you know, the parents come, you know, I don't care if my child was misbehaving, you know, you should not recommend them. You know, because we're consumers, so we have the prerogative to tell the manufacturers how to do things. Yeah. This is not the way the Dharma works. This is not the Dharma mind. The Dharma mind is, you know, we're the patients in the whole thing, okay? We're drowning in samsara. We need help. We go with an attitude of humility. We go with an attitude of receptiveness. We go with an attitude of giving. We don't expect that everything's nice, neatly packaged, ready to be deliverable in a way that we want it to be. But we're willing to work. Yeah. So we get the teachings in whatever form that we get them and we're willing to take notes, to transcribe them, to listen to them again and again, yeah. to meditate on them, to make up an outline ourselves. Okay. So without somebody else giving us an outline, then we just neatly put with all of our papers that we never look at again. But instead, we're willing to, you know, put the energy in there to review all the material, make up our own outline, think about it, talk about it with other friends, and you know, so it really gels for us and comes together. And we're not sitting there waiting for the, for the end product to be delivered to us, but we help in the creation, and especially in uh, Dharma in the West where we don't have established monasteries or temples or Dharma centers or retreat centers that are really on firm footing. You know, we have a lot of different things going on. And even if they are on firm footing, they, you know, by and large depend on volunteer effort. Yeah. And so we don't just let everybody else run the Dharma 
center or run the temple or run the monastery and we come when there's a course and we come when there's a teacher but we're nowhere to be seen when there's no course and there's no teacher because we're consumers you see that's the consumer mind I come when there's something there that interests me but I have no obligation you know when we buy something from Hitachi we don't feel any obligation any loyalty to the company at all it's just a feel good product we buy it so we, we bring that into the Dharma Center you know oh there's a teacher there's a there's a retreat I'll go but I have no commitment to do anything for this group of people because they're there as a business to serve me the consumer that's how we think of it but that's not what a Dharma institution is yeah it's not a for-profit corporation it's not a business it's something that depends on volunteer labor and it doesn't happen without our efforts and so some people contribute more financially and less by giving their time other people contribute more by giving their time and less financially some people contribute both ways but don't be somebody that contributes in neither way okay and I think there is something very valuable about contributing your time and energy because then you really see what it goes what it takes to make a dharma event happen yeah and we really see the kindness of the sentient beings who have worked for so many years to make Dharma available to us I remember once a friend of mine was going to a, a certain Dharma center which had, has been operating for let's say about 30 years and, and I just made the often comment about you know um, waltzing into the center and enjoying the program and that person got very offending oh, I'm not, I didn't waltz in there um, so I, I didn't I didn't mean literally waltz but <laughs> you know I knew the people who had begun that center and I knew what they went through in the beginning and early years of creating that you know this person didn't they had no idea what people had gone through you know 30 years ago and 20 years ago or even 10 years ago to make that center so that now they have the education program that they just needed to to show up for okay so it's really important I think when you offer your service and your time and your energy to some organization it really helps you to see dependent arising and how things exist due to the dependent arising and efforts of so many people and it really helps you to have a sense of the kindness of all those people and what they did in bringing the teachings to us Um, you know I look at my teacher's situation and they could have happily stayed in India why did they need to come to the west because I went to my first course in the West subsequently I went to India and Nepal my first course was in the West they didn't need to come and be in this crazy hedonistic culture traveling around getting jet lagged 
Yeah, being away from their friends, being away from their support group, being with people who create, who spoke a different language and didn't know the etiquette and didn't even treat them properly. Yeah, they didn't need to do that. Similarly, you know, just you think of, of any person who is involved with somehow you're getting the Dharma and what all those people did to make it happen. Yeah. And seeing that it's part of our responsibility to make it happen. Yeah. It's not others' responsibility. When I was training in, in uh, Nepal, you know, we all had jobs within the monastery. Most of the work we were doing was had to be done yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but our teacher sometimes didn't tell us we had to do it until that night. You know, so we stayed up late at night doing whatever it was that was supposed to be done yesterday. But at least we'll get it done tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, we did it to serve our teacher but it wasn't just serving our teacher because our teacher didn't need all that stuff you know we had this old mimeograph machine at Kokon you know this old mimeograph those of you who are teachers it's not a new one it was an old one okay that broke constantly but it was very hard to repair things on anyway you know um our teacher didn't need those handouts that we were making. Our teacher didn't need the prayers put into phonetics. He knew it in Tibetan by his own language. Yeah. He didn't need those materials that he was asking us to prepare. Yeah. It was the students that were doing who needed it. So we offer service to our teacher because our teacher is offering service to sentient beings. So we are actually offering service to sentient beings at the same time we're offering service to our teacher. Okay? So it all kind of fits together in that way. Yeah. And I think that's really important for our practice. You know, that we really see how all these parts are necessary and that we really put our own energy into it. Yeah. At least that's the way I was trained. And um, hopefully it had some good effect. Of course, my teachers didn't say, this is how we're training you. <laughs> they didn't explain to us what they were doing. They just said, do this, do that, do this, do that. You know? You didn't You didn't get a please. Yeah. Yeah. The old, nowadays, the teacher has to I'll make three frustrations if you do this. Um, That's not the way the Tibetan lamas were. They were, okay, do this. Okay, do that. And it wasn't just do this, you know, one thing that is done tonight. It's like, go to this country and live for three years. (laughs) You know, and teach the Dharma and there's no support for you but go there see you later <laughs> you know it was like that and they didn't say oh this is how we're training you yeah so we had no clue what was going on 
So of course some people don't shed, but some people hung in there. So uh, I don't know how I got on this topic. Because <laughs> 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 we were actually going to meditate on a lot of the other three sufferings. But, you know, I, I think that, that uh, you know, it, it's good to offer service and put our time and energy into things. There's a lot of people in this room who have been doing that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it. There's a number of people from different Dharma centers in this group. Yeah. So, you know, we all have our own way of uh, contributing and, and doing something. And, uh, and I think that's important because it brings us out of ourselves. Yeah. And it brings us out of um, the consumer mind of, I'm going to come for the good stuff. And actually, you know what it does is it brings us out of that 